Well, my kids are now adults, but when they were younger, we took a few family vacations. And one of those family vacations took us out to the Grand Canyon. And it was my first time seeing the Grand Canyon. I had never seen it before. So it was a first for many of us as our family going out there together. And, and if you go out to the Grand Canyon with children who are a little bit younger, you'll notice something. Just like you see in the picture that was there, you'll notice that there are no fences. There are no boundaries. Occasionally you'll come across a small space where there might be a little chain covering a particular spot. But for the most part, there are no physical boundaries separating you and the canyon. There's an edge. It's a boundary. But that's it. Now, that can be a little bit disconcerting for parents. As a matter of fact, it can be disconcerting for adults. But not for all adults, because as happens every year out at the Grand Canyon, there are always a number of people who decide to step out too close to the edge and wind up either accidentally or foolishly or both falling over to their death. It happens every year. And so you wonder, well, why don't they just build big, gigantic fences out there? Because that's not the way that the Grand Canyon was intended to be taken in. That's not the way it's meant to be seen. So instead of big boundaries that are defined by fences out there, there are warning signs. There are warning signs all over the place. And those warning signs say things like, stay back from the edge. <laughs> Do not walk too close to the edge. Those warning signs are everywhere. And they speak to you, and if you're wise, you follow what those signs tell you. And as it turns out, when we were out there with our family, what we became as parents is we became the boundary keepers. We became the ones that protected our kids from the edge as we walked along the pathways and looked out at the beautiful vista of the Grand Canyon. Our kids were instructed to always be on the inside of us away from the canyon. We walked along that pathway, always keeping them on the other side. We're thankful that our kids were obedient. <laughs> they listened. And we kept them safe by keeping them away from the edge so they didn't fall off into the abyss and to their death. There are boundaries in our Christian faith. There are things that we are taught and learn about our Christian faith that are completely exclusive to our Christian faith and that establish those boundary lines for where it is we are not supposed to cross. And they're meant to be there for a reason. They're meant to protect us. They're meant to keep us from danger and to preserve our spiritual lives, just like we are there to stand in the boundaries for the physical lives of our children and of others. And that reality is sometimes difficult to understand because those same things that we look at as boundary lines, as places of protection, those become things that trip people up when they are trying to understand the Christian faith from both within and from without. So we want to talk a bit about what those things are 
today. And we start by looking at a passage of Scripture that helps us to understand what this really means. And it's from 1 Peter chapter 2. And I would invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them there with you. It's always a good idea to have those Bibles with you ready to open in the comfort of your home. Just have some Bibles around so that you can open them up and read along. I'll be reading from the New International Version. 1 Peter chapter 2. Actually, I'm going to begin at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame." Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Stones and rocks, rocks and stones. There's a lot of talking about rocks and stones in this little passage here. And it's actually a metaphor that shows up all over in Scripture. And I would, I would challenge you to go and look up those other places where you see things described as stone, especially as it pertains to Peter. But as he describes this, he's pulling out passages of Scripture that talk about this stone. And it describes Jesus as being, first of all, this chosen cornerstone, this solid rock, this place that we can stand on that's firm. It's like being inside of the boundaries of the Grand Canyon. You know, you know that in those places, the ground is firm below you. It's not going to shake. It's not going to fall apart. It's not going to break off. It is solid all the way down to the bedrock. So you know you're safe there. But as you get closer and closer to the boundary, to the edge, you don't know for sure what is there supporting you underneath. You're not positive that that is what is there. And if you don't trust that you should stay in the place that has the solid ground, you can risk stumbling over the places that don't have solid ground. And that's that stone that causes people to stumble or a rock that makes people fall. Now that word for a rock that makes people fall, that word in Greek is skandalon where we get the English scandal from. There are things that have tripped people up all the way from the very beginning in our Christian faith, right from the very beginning. Stuff about Jesus, stuff that made those who were the first followers of Jesus find difficulty in understanding who Jesus was or what he came to do. But it certainly caused scandal and a tripping stone for those who were opposed to Jesus who had their minds firmly fixed in a different understanding of who God was and what God had come to do for them. So we want to take a look today and introduce just a few of the boundaries that are sometimes tripping hazards for people coming to understand the faith. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to cover all of them today, so here's what I want to encourage you. I'm going to work my way through some of them. But I want to encourage you, as you come up with other things, there may be some of you who have been followers of Jesus your whole life, Uh, And as you are coming up on these things, and there's other ideas that come to your mind about things that are really exclusive and particular to the Christian faith, 
that are central to what we believe. I want you to send them to me because I'm going to make them some discussion points that I'll bring up during my videos and my responses throughout the week here just so that we can cover the ground on this really broad topic. But I want to narrow in on a few things here today to talk about what these boundaries look like. There's something that we talk about in our Lutheran heritage or even in Reform heritage. It's something called the five solas. And sola is just a Latin word that means alone or by itself. And that word in and of itself is kind of exclusive, right? When you think about being alone, that means you're not with anybody else. Maybe like you're experiencing right now in your own home, feeling like it's your family that's a sola, or you by yourself who are solo in your home. But a sola means something that is alone. And these five solas that have been developed over time are this. This is what they are. Word alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, why are each of those so important? Well, because each one of them does stand by themselves. They connect together into something that uniquely describes the Christian faith over and against any other way of believing. I want to talk to you particularly today about two of those solas. The first one being word alone. Word alone. What does that mean? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 give us an insight into what this means. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When we hear that, we hear some key words that are in there. It says that all Scripture, meaning everything that we have with us in the Bible, is God-breathed. It is spoken into life by God, His Holy Spirit speaking into the lives of those original authors who then wrote those words down for us to be able to read today. That is what we believe as followers of Jesus. And that means that this word, this holy text, the words of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament that we have, are important to us in a unique way. They have authority. They have authority. As a matter of fact, they have ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. Now, it's one thing to talk about authority in and of itself. Sometimes people just have an issue with authority, right? <laughs> there are folks who just don't like being told what to do by anybody. And sometimes in any one of our lives, we can reach those places where we're really tired of being told what to do. That's a part of who we are as, as sinners, as people who, who fail, as people who miss the mark that God has for us in his perfection, so when we talk about authority, that in and of itself gives us a little bit of, of pause. It might be a tripping point for some people right there. But when we talk about ultimate authority, it moves it up even a notch from there. It says that there is no authority that is equal to or above this authority. That's what we mean when we say word alone. It means God's word alone is the ultimate authority, and no other authority equals or surpasses the authority of God's word. Now, you can imagine that there are some things that trip people up about that. There were things that trip people up about, about that in the time of Jesus. There are things that trip us up about it today. 
What are some of those tripping hazards that we see there? Well, today, one of those tripping hazards might be what's called materialism or a scientific worldview. Now, let me say this before I say anything else. I am not here to say that science is bad. I'm not here to say that all science should be rejected and thrown to the side. That is not at all what I am saying. What I am saying is that all science needs to submit its authority to the authority of God's word. All authority is in God's word. Now, there are other authorities that we see in our lives, right? I mean, we have the authority in our lives from our parents. Our parents have a a version of authority over us. Law enforcement has, has a range of authority over us. Our civic leaders and civil leaders, they have a degree of authority over us, and we should honor that authority for sure. Teachers, professors, those who are learned and who have studied things like science have a degree of authority that we should respect in knowing things that we don't know. So there are many authorities, but those authorities must submit themselves to the authority of God's word, the ultimate authority. And there are some who have a worldview called a materialistic worldview or an exclusively scientific worldview that reject anything else as having authority above that. That's what we are talking about. That's what I'm speaking about particularly here, is that there is no higher authority than God's word. So if you come up against that, that's a challenge. People who are focused in on an exclusively scientific view of the world have a tremendously hard time understanding how things could happen supernaturally. How things that are described in the word of God that we take as being true and having authority could possibly have happened. Such as God creating the universe out of nothing. Such as God stopping the sun in the sky or the rotation of the earth. And most especially, raising someone from the dead. Those things just don't match up in a purely scientific worldview. So it is okay to understand that there are things that science has to teach us and show us, without a doubt. They just don't have absolute authority and ultimate authority as God's word does. Now that's not the only thing that can become a challenge. (laughs) Another thing that can become a tripping hazard are other texts. Other texts. You know, there are texts that have been written, religious texts written, all throughout the centuries, all around the world. And when we see those other texts, some people will say, well, doesn't that text have authority? I mean, doesn't that text have authority that's equal to God's authority? As a Christian, we say no. (laughs) Completely and absolutely and unequivocally. No, they do not have the same or equal or greater authority. In fact, some of them are absolutely contrary (laughs) to the authority of God's word. But there are other places that, for for a follower of Jesus, it might seem fairly simplistic to say, well, of course, we don't follow the Book of Mormon, okay? We don't follow the Quran. Uh, We don't follow the uh, Bhagavad Gita. We don't follow these, these various different texts from these various different religions. But there are also texts that emerge within our religions that sometimes we want to honor as equal to Scripture, We as followers of Jesus in what's called the Lutheran tradition, the Lutheran faith, we have a book, a book called the Book of Concord. 
And the book of Concord has some wonderful things in it. And when read in the right light and with the right heart, it points to Jesus. The various texts in there are meant to point us to Jesus, and they're actually meant to also help provide some safe boundaries around our faith that we can understand. But they always point to Scripture. Now, they point to Scripture, but they are not Scripture. So that means that they are not an ultimate authority. Whatever authority they have, even within our unique Lutheran perspective on Christianity, they do not rise to the same level as Scripture. Now that's for us uniquely as Lutherans, but there are other texts that that other followers of Jesus also raise and honor very highly, and that's okay, as long as they always submit ultimately to the Word of God. That is our final authority and our ultimate authority. But where does Scripture ultimately point? Scripture, the Word, points to Jesus. And that is something particular to us as Christians, too. The Word of God speaks specifically about Jesus And it's important that we know that and understand that because there is no other way to come to God than through Jesus. Jesus alone, Christ alone. That's why that's one of those solas. There is no other way to approach God than through Jesus. There is no other way to understand who God truly is apart from Jesus. Jesus is what we call the revelation of who God is because he is God. All of these things I'm saying can certainly be areas that trip people up who are not followers of Jesus and sometimes bring up questions amongst those of us who are followers of Jesus. So Acts 4 verse 12 says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That name that's being referenced there is Jesus. Jesus the Christ. There's no other name. There is no other name that we call upon and can call upon to be saved, to be rescued, to be brought into an eternal life with God forever. But putting our trust there and putting our faith in Jesus is putting our feet on the solid ground. It's putting ourselves on the firm foundation, on that cornerstone which has also become a a, a top stone. These are the, the, the keys to understanding what our faith is about, and they are exclusive. Now, this one, I think, is especially brought into light today because I think there are a lot of people who, out of, out of a heart of caring, will say things like, well, Jesus is just one of the ways to God. I mean, what about all those people out there who don't put their trust in Jesus? What about all those people out there who never hear about Jesus? I mean, they must have some way of getting to God, right? That's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture teaches us that there is no other way. In fact, Jesus himself says it in John chapter 4, verse 6. There's a a passage of Scripture there from 1 to 6, but in In John chapter 14, verse 6, it says this specifically. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't say in that passage, I am a way. He doesn't say I am one kind of life that you could have. He doesn't say that I am a truth. He says he is the way. He says he is the life and the truth. That's exclusive. And that trips people up. That biggest tripping hazard that we see in that is what we call universalism. That idea that all pathways ultimately lead their way to God. That all of them are safe ways to find God. That every one of them will ultimately lead to the same place. But Jesus says differently. And Jesus says specifically that he is the way, meaning he is the path. As a matter of fact, the first Christians weren't called Christians. The first Christians were called people of the way. People of the way. People who stood in the way, the way that Jesus taught, following the path that Jesus laid out for them. And to get off of that path is not safe. To get off of that path puts you in danger. You know, on another one of the trips that I took with my family, we went out to Yellowstone National Park. Beautiful park. And it was so wonderful to see all of the, the, the amazing things that God created out there from the volcanic things to the, the amazing uh, fountains and, and all of the, the hot springs and all of the bubbling pools. All of them were incredible to see. But in order to see them safely, you had to walk on paths. There were paths that were all through the park. And those paths had hand railings on either side to make sure that you didn't go off the path. And every year... There are some people who decide to walk off the path to get just a little bit closer to the pretty bubbling blue water. Oh, it's gorgeous and pretty and beautiful. It also has toxic gas that you can't see that comes off of it that can overwhelm you and kill you. It also has temperatures that are above boiling under pressure and can burn you and scald you terribly. And yet people still wander off the path, figuring that they know a better way. There is a path that's been put in place, and that path is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way. But there's another tripping hazard that comes in this too. And that's the tripping hazard of self-righteousness. We talked about sin a little bit at the beginning of our conversation here today. And sin is just what I said earlier. It's missing the mark. It's, it's diverging from what it is that God has as his perfect plan for us. His desire that we would be holy. It's the way that he created us originally in the garden. But as a result of our own rebellion, we broke that relationship. And now we are seeking a way to have that relationship restored and the simple fact is that through most of human history, most human beings have tried to find a way to God on their own, figuring, I'll just do the right things. I'll be good enough, work hard enough, and somehow God will accept me. Somehow the, the balance in the equation between good and bad will fall in my favor, and that way God will accept me into his eternity when I die. That's called self-righteousness, and it doesn't work because none of us measure up. None of us are, are perfect in ourselves. 
And I don't have to tell that to you because all you have to do is look around. All you have to do is look at your family. All you have to do is look at yourself. And you know that you're not perfect. That's why we need a rescuer. That's why we need a path. That's why we need somebody who points us to salvation. That's Jesus. Jesus points us to salvation. And the way that he points us there is a sign. Those warning signs that are out there on the borders of the Grand Canyon and those rails that are along the pathways in Yellowstone National Park. Those are signs and warnings that remind you of where it is that you should be and where it is that you should look. But there's a sign that we look to in Jesus, and that sign is the cross. Last week, as we worked our way through Holy Week, we came through Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then on to Easter Sunday. But if we miss Good Friday, we really miss something that's so important, and it's the cross. It's recognizing that on the cross, Jesus did something for us that we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. And what he did in dying for us gives us life. Jesus is the one who crossed over the boundary. Jesus is the one who crossed over the boundary between life and death to purchase life for us. And by doing so, he made a way, a perfect way, between humanity and God. But it's one way, and it's trusting in that way. So as I wrap up today, I invite you to look to the cross. Look at the cross as that sign. That sign that shows us who we are, but that sign who shows who God is, more importantly. Because those boundaries are meant to keep us safe. Those boundaries are meant to protect. But the motivation behind those boundaries is not because God hates you, not because God wants to destroy you, not at all. Those boundaries are in place out of a motivation of God's love. It's his love that is shown to us on the cross. It's his love that is shown to us as the heart of a father that wants to protect his children. It's his love that is expressed to us on the cross. That's where we look. That's what we see. And it is Christ alone. Amen.